0: But it's it's this idea that you know the people that you meet on the street every day are important. I, again, it, it doesn't have to be a deep, meaningful conversation, but a smile or a side conversation, oh did you hear about this mm. keeps that community going and you really lose that when you have these, you know, these slum clearances. People can end up being much more isolated.
1: Hello and welcome to the Essential Scholars Podcast. I'm Rosemary Fike, your host, and today we're going to be learning about Jane Jacobs. My guest today is Dr. Lydia Milgen, author of the chapter on Jane Jacobs in our book, The Essential Women of Liberty. Dr. Milgen is a professor of political science at University of Windsor and a senior fellow at the Fraser Institute. Thank you so much for joining me today. I am excited to have the opportunity to chat about a scholar that I admittedly do not know a ton about Jane Jacobs, so um, really excited to learn from you.
0: Well, happy to be here.
1: So can you tell me a little bit about who Jane Jacobs was? and you know a little bit about her background um, and her, her education, which was a bit unusual.
0: Yes. I mean, she's an interesting character and, and personality. In as much in She's not a typical scholar that we think of as sort of an academic scholar. Uh, primarily, Jane was a journalist. She wrote for a variety of different publications when she was first starting out. She wrote for Vogue. She wrote for a bunch of trade publications. But she really honed her skills on urban planning when she wrote for Architectural Digest. Um, and in, in that work, she had, you know, really looked at the issue of urban planning so her education was a little sketchy she you know she she obviously passed you know graduated from high school but she you know didn't win any awards (laughs) nobody said oh this is the woman to watch in the future um she actually found her her teachers boring and tedious and in fact she says i'm glad i didn't do so well in high school because it saved me from a tedious university education (laughs) so you know she she leaves high school but she says you know i really want to be a journalist and her parents said well that's great, but you've got to find some skills because you know you gotta you gotta sort of have two pathways one something you love. And one something you can earn money at. So she went to she went to secretarial school, which is sort of the thing you do as a woman in the you know in the 1930s. Um, so she learns you know typing and stenography. But she really wanted, even at 18, she wanted to be a journalist. So she gets a unpaid internship at her local uh, paper, the the Scranton Observer, and uh, she says to them, "I'm going to work for free. Teach me how to be a journalist." So she she works for a year for free, um, and she sort of hones those skills. And then with that. She packs up her bag and she joins her sister in New York City to to make it as a journalist in the middle of the Great Depression. Uh, So, this is not a shrinking violet. And then, you know, while she's in New York after the first few years, she actually takes, um, you know, in a a sort of a, I guess we'd call it now, um, I forget what the word would be, but in a sort of a, a, auxiliary degree at Columbia, sort of open university kind of courses, and she takes anything she wants and she does a really great job at that. But sort of that's the extent of her education. So
1: almost, you know, self, self-taught in a in a way. Um so what is the focus of Jacob's research? What what is the focus of of her work? Um and and what influenced her interest in in studying what she studies?
0: Yeah, so she's you know she 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 goes to New York. She does some freelance stuff. She takes those courses, and um, she lands actually a job with and during the war with the State Department. And then even after the State Department, she writes for this bizarre publication that's put out by the U.S. government called America with a K, and its audience <laughs> is Russians. So this publication gets translated and it goes to Russia, presumably for Russians to see about. Uh, American life. And then there's a sister publication that goes to America uh, that's supposed to inform Americans about Soviet life. My suspicion is that neither <laughs> neither population actually received these publications. But, you know, even in in her America stuff, she talks a little bit about urban planning and poverty issues and things like that. So she's not completely a propagandist for the government, but that's sort of what this thing is. Anyway, she leaves she leaves the, the State Department and she works for architectural digest. And in in that's really that lays the groundwork for the rest of her career, where she's she's looking at at sort of architecture in general, but urban planning in particular. And she says, you know, when you see these plans, so that there was a real movement in the 1940s and 50s that there's, you know, people were saying we've got too many slots Slums. We've got over overpopulation. We've got health concerns. We've got issues with poverty. You know, we need to find better housing. So housing's the the issue. And and urban planners go, yes, we need to declare areas slums, basically tear it all down, and build new places. These big skyscrapers. Uh, you know, the the model of it. There was this idea of a garden city, is that somehow you could elevate people to the sky, and they'd sit in these beautiful towers, and then they could look down on wonderful parkways and things like that. And and initially, Jacobs thought, yeah, that sounds pretty cool. It sounds better than living in a vermin, you know, infested slum. Um, But then she starts to do some additional research, and she speaks with, you know, sociologists and stuff like that. And she starts to walk the streets of these so-called slums. And she says, wait a minute, they're not crime ridden. I mean yeah, they've got some they've got some deficiencies in their building standards, but those can be reformed. You don't need to 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 get rid of them. And she also sort of notices just sort of what people live like on the street. And she says these are not this isn't street barbarism. You've got people looking at the street. You've got families co- congregating. You have a community there and you have shops and you have enterprise and what she observed is that when you tear that down you don't just displace the people but you displace the community and there were and, she, and, you know, and, and so she writes a book called, you know, Life and, and Death of Great American Cities. And in there, she really explores, the, you know, what is the consequences of central urban planning? What impact does it have on the people? And she says that actually ends up becoming the root cause of crime and it also displacement of communities. And more importantly, it gets rid of your small business people you know like all those corner shops mm-hmm. go away the the tailor the the grocery store um, you know the, the 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 little corner shop where you can you know grab a a pint of milk and in its place you've get these sterile um, high rises that are far removed from the street, that you don't have people looking down at the street. And in fact, you're now allowing for bad actors to take hold and crime increases. And mm-hmm. so these are, you know, the, the so-called projects. And we we know now what an abject failure there were, they were. So that's really wow. her big push uh, with that book. And then subsequent other books, she sort of explores similar issues.
1: And so that seems like it's got a lot of policy relevance for, for today's world. I know um, you mentioned in the book that uh, the COVID-19 pandemic has really shaken people's view on what is the future of cities. Um, I also know that post natural disasters, there's often a push to not just rebuild, but let's rebuild better. Let's turn some places into green space and um, let's you know optimize the structure of our city. Um, how could we use Jane Jacobs' insights to kind of navigate those policy conversations?
0: Yeah. I mean, Jacob's perspective was quite interesting. I don't think she was totally opposed to planning. I think she was opposed to strict planning and this idea that somebody, you know, somebody from the outside could tell a community what was best for them. You know, she later in life, she she moves to Toronto and actually advises Mayor Crombie, when he first gets into office, I, there's one story about how he he had he had used her book in his classes when he taught at Ryerson, and you know he goes to he goes you know what can I do that costs no money <laughs> and she says, get rid of your zoning bylaws you know mm-hmm. stop stop with this because you've got to allow for mixed use and you've got to allow for people to use the the resources around them and trust people's own creativity mm-hmm. rather than expect some central planner in an office in downtown Toronto to decide for a community allow the community for decide for itself and in fact that was it was one of the early successes of Crombie's reign in that they allowed for certain areas—not all, but certain areas—to have mixed use. So you'd have a building that, that say, was run down and and um, didn't have a big use. And now people went, "Oh, we don't have to go through this complicated planning and zoning and expensive um, process of getting permits. We can say we're going to have." You know, some people might want to convert some of, the, some of the floors into housing. Some might want to have retail shops. And you would have a mix of different activities. And for, for, for Jane Jacobs, that's the preference. Because her idea was that you don't want exclusive districts. So she has a whole mm-hmm. chapter on sort of the problem with cities where we say, here is a financial district. Here is an entertainment district. She goes, the problem with that is that you end up with deserts at different times of the day so sure the financial districts is going to be really busy in the daytime when everyone's in those offices working but what happens at night well at night they become scary places and that's Mm -hmm. where you can have crime and 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 likewise so she said a street needs to be used all the time Mm. it's going to be used by different people but it's the more people you have utilizing it it's busy it's active and it's going to be a safe street and that's a really interesting insight that she provides because it it sort of moves away from this cookie cutter thing and and this utopian vision and really deals with how people like to live right if you're going to buy an apartment downtown you probably want there to be stuff to do not just in the morning or in the daytime, but also in the evening. And, mm-hmm. and so that's what sort of her main message is. in, in that kind of observation,
1: she also um, meant you also mentioned in the chapter that she was really focused on the importance of experimentation for, for uh, vibrant cities. Can you talk a little bit about, about that?
0: Yeah again it's it's sort of this idea that you don't have to have just one vision and it and it's the idea that maybe she doesn't have all the answers and maybe no one person has all the answers. But you should be able to try stuff out and, and you shouldn't have government standing in the way of innovation. And and that's really what she saw. I mean, she had a huge fight with the central planners. I mean, they decided that not only did they want to clear away slums and it was very, I mean, let's face it, th- th- their policy was very racist. They'd look at oh, a community and if it was predominantly black, well, we're just going to label it a slum and then give us a reason to do that. But at one point they wanted to run, you know, th- it's all about. Again, this is the 60s. it was a very strange time. They're they're all about, you know, cars and putting highways into cities. And she's like, and so at one point they wanted to take Washington Park, which is a real landmark park, and run a highway through it. Now, I mean, certainly that would help with traffic, but it would destroy that community. And we've seen that in other ones. I mean, I live right next door to Detroit. And that's a city that was immensely ruined by highways, basically ripping through um, communities. And her argument there is that you don't want a highway to go through a city. You want it to take people to the city. So as a way to go into that. So, you know, I guess that's a very long way of answering your question, but but really experimentation allows for the community wow. to decide. And 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 it's also in a sense she was sort of tapping into the Schumpeter idea of creative destruction, which is, you know, capitalism is messy and uh that, not Schumpeter, I mean, and in that, you know, it's always rebuilding. There's always competition and innovation. And that competition, imitation does leave some people behind. Like, like, make no mistake. You know, when when a company fails, people lose their jobs. But his observation, I think Jacob sort of touches on that, is that even if you lose jobs, what is replaced creates that many more jobs. And so there, so experimentation allows for mistakes to be made, but it also allows for great innovation and change and 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 progress in ways that we have seen over the last you know hundred years, especially.
1: How do we, how might we facilitate an environment for that experimentation, something that encourages experimentation? Are there certain, you know, institutional rules that Jacobs emphasizes in her work?
0: Yeah, I think it really is on the whole urban planning landscape and the zoning bylaws and sort of the restrictive uses. You know, I think people living in Vancouver are very attuned to how restrictive it is. And part of it is NIMBYism. I mean, it's our own fault that if you have a property in an area that's that's seen as as, um, one that that a lot of people want, you want to maintain your property values and Mm -hmm. you're thinking about how you can get the best buck but you know when there are so many people needing just reasonable priced housing um the restrictions on the height or the density or saying you know you can't have mixed use makes no sense i mean there's Mm got to be some provisions both to allow for people to think about properties in unusual ways and there's all sorts of Fact, uh, you know, so you think about older fair factories or warehouses, you know, those could easily be converted into some really interesting spaces. Um, and, and, uh, Obviously planners like densification, but you've also you know got to reduce those barriers. I think that's sort of one of her, her main uh, takeaways is is that that it shouldn't be a, even you know one person or a small group of people deciding. It should be you know people within the community saying these are our needs and, and you know, why not have? X, Y, or Z option and and having people try it out. And again, if they fail, they fail and you try something else. I mean, you know, the thing about land that I think is a classic real estate term is that they're not making any more of it. So, you know, we've got to figure out how we can utilize the spaces that we have and encourage people to, to try new, new, um, new ideas.
1: One of the interesting things that you mentioned in the chapter, is that uh, Jane Jacobs talks about how cities serve as a space to train our children to assimilate to the world. Can you talk a little bit about that? I thought it was really fascinating and it kind of cuts contrary to, I want to say, the parenting mindset of a lot of people today.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so I mean, I don't know if our if. parents today would buy into this it certainly is uh, again a very different time like we're talking she's writing in the 60s so you know kids my age and so my experience of growing up is that we were on the streets <laughs> you know it was it was a generation where you know in the summer your mom kicked you out at nine o'clock and then she'd call you home at dark um and you'd go run wild in the streets um wasn't quite that <laughs> for us it bad. was
1: when the street lights come on it was time to come home yeah
0: yeah so and and her again her her visions is, is quite interesting because you know there you know it's, it's the idea that kids should be able to play on the sidewalks and and, and a lot of us grew up doing that right you oh. you draw chalk and you 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 play hopscotch and stuff like that you'd be socializing with your friends and again it's a different time we didn't have devices we only had one TV it was black and white it was horrible oh, um, so, so there was nothing to do inside the house except chores but the other thing I think was is just probably more. Um, mindful of her is she says the thing about city planners especially at that time is they were men and they were thinking of 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 they were planning cities that were women dominated they didn't plan for men to be involved um and 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 for sort of for it to be a societal thing um and so again if you're if you're if you're carting people out to the suburbs and you have this expectation that it's a single pa- family income um mm-hmm. in, in the you know the again, the, the patriarch would go out and work, and then it would be the mother at home with the kids. That's saying that it's just, the, it's just the mother's job to do the raising of the children. But if everyone's in the cities and the kids are in the streets, well, then they're interacting with men and women, right? They're interacting with workers, which, which could be both genders. And, and there's a bigger role for men to play in the day-to-day life of cities because you're not separating families during the main part of the day Um, and so that that's a really interesting insight especially considering the time that she was writing
1: yeah and not only just interacting with men and women but in cities you're going to be interacting with a a diverse population a more diverse population than you might interact with in in the suburbs so there might even be you know some benefits along the lines of tolerance uh, of people that are maybe different from you
0: yeah exactly because you're you're going to go to the street corner and you're going to see the, the person who's you know running the newspaper shop and there's you know going to be a candy store and there's just different people who are who are in commerce and and, and I think that's something that's quite refreshing about her work and and it's also you know difficult to pigeonhole her because she's very much pro social justice but she's also pro small businesses and oh. you know allowing for people to to make a living
1: You mentioned in the chapter that she kind of transcends political divides, that that her work is quoted and and respected by both liberals and conservatives. And and you don't find that many people that you can say that about. Um, So I was wondering, um, you know, what are some of the real impacts that she had on policy?
0: Well certainly she's she's influenced urban policy but she also had um I mean you know, so she she she's, she certainly was part of protest politics so mm-hmm. she had um you know she had obviously advocated and protested against the 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 Washington Square demolition her own community was earmarked for demolition she was able to stop that that was you know West Greenwich Village again an iconic neighborhood Can
1: you uh, imagine Yeah I know
0: There would have been no, there would have been no friends, right? Right. (laughs) Um, But she also protested against the Vietnam War. um, So she's very adamant against it. And actually that's the story of why she ends up in Canada, because she had two sons who were getting, who were coming of age. And so they, she, she encouraged her her sons to be draft dodgers. And they, they, they dropped everything. They left uh, New York, which she loved. She'd lived there for, I think 30 years And then they moved to Toronto and that's where she she remains for the rest of her life. So she, she, she does have a lot of really interesting policy things. And I think she also, you know, with her work with David Crombie, she had consulted a lot on, you know, should we have... Um, you know, how should we do our transportation? So she was she's an opponent of some of the highway mm-hmm. projects in Toronto. She encouraged um, different ways of looking at planning in that. And she, you know, she continued to write while she she lived in Canada and was very active on those things.
1: One of the things that um, she kind of criticizes about that planning approach or that you know revitalizing a community approach um, is. The displacement of of certain people and and businesses can you talk a little bit about like how what the effects of that displacement might be
0: yeah so she, you know it, and, I, and i'm so glad i was doing this project during the pandemic because it really brought home to me i think a, a major sort of teaching that she had. And and it's this idea of shallow relationships. You know, we talk about, you know, our close family and friends like that and how much we miss them during the pandemic. But the other thing we missed is those shallow interactions, just the person that you nod to on the street. You don't really know their name, but you know them, or the person on the bus or something like that. And she says that those are really important parts of society. And, and there are natural people who you interact with that are part of that. So you know, it's the local grocer or the piano teacher or, or people like that, where they they sort of hold the community together. They communicate with members of the community through gossip or just exchange of informations. But it's it it's that that keeps us as a part of society, right? If we're only talking to our close friends, we're missing those broader interactions. And so those people on the street, so almost like a maybe she informed a Sesame Street. I don't know, but it's it's this <laughs> idea that you know the people that you meet on the street every day are important. I, again, it, it it doesn't have to be a deep meaningful conversation, but a mm-hmm. smile or side conversation, oh, did you hear about this, Mm -hmm. keeps that community going. And you really lose that when you have these, you know, these slum clearances, because those jobs, even those businesses go away, Mm -hmm. or they move someplace else. and, And those high rises don't have that same interaction. For one, people are much more fearful, right? You know, she talks about how you know you don't you don't have people looking on the street anymore because there's nothing to see it's just this wasteland that no people are afraid to go into that park cuz it looks scary but also even inside the 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 hallways you know, they're dark and dingy, people are afraid to they don't they really can't look out. If you've lived in an apartment building, you know you have your door. There's no window into the hallway. And so that allows for, you know, bad actors to take hold and it makes people more frightened. And so people can end up being much more isolated than they were in that, you know, lower to the to to the street kind of kind of um kind of city and and so that was one of the the big things she was pushing for in a lot of planning is that you just can't have these big high rises i mean high rises have their place she she does acknowledge that she says but they they're planned for a much more affluent um clientele people who could Mm -hmm. afford a doorman for example and again the doorman in the building would facilitate that kind of thing right the doorman or woman you know greets people by name they know the gossip of the of the city but if you're in a building that doesn't have that you're much more isolated and so you know everyone has a role and 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 her thing is that you don't need the police you can't have the police be everywhere you right. gotta have society watch out for each other and be its own sort of structure and, and you could sort of imi- imagine you know a, a nosy the nosy neighbor right the nosy neighbor that's looking out saying you know you can't keep it down out there kind of stuff There's i definitely
1: had one of those there was no there was no getting away with anything At my house, my next door neighbor told my mom absolutely everything. But she was one of those public characters that Jacobs talks about. Um, She knew absolutely everything that was going on in the neighborhood. She knew all of the local government conversations, um, who was sick at church. Like, exactly. If you wanted any kind of information, you would go to her.
0: Yeah. And that's that's a perfect role, right? That 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 keeps the kids in check, again, socializing children. Uh, but it keeps the community together in some respects because they know what's going on. And, uh, you know, because let's face it, the media is not going to cover what happens on your street. <laughs> that's something that you as a as a the people who live there are only interested in.
1: And when you study cities from kind of a top down, kind of bird's eye view approach, you miss out on these things that, that don't seem really important, but actually in practice are, are, are really vital to a well-functioning city.
0: Yeah. And, and society too, I think. And, and, and that really is what she was talking about is just like, sort of what is that social network that we have and how can it be facilitated with, with cities and, and with, you know, how people decide to live together.
1: One of the things you also mentioned in the chapter is that you know, in addition to some of her work on cities, she she challenged the conventional wisdoms of economics. You mentioned that. Um, what are some of the things that she challenged in economics?
0: Well, she she writes a book later on um, on on sort of the economy of cities and and she sort of says you know what we've been taught all along is that there's been sort of this evolution of society and you have to have agriculture first and then agriculture leads to cities and she says that doesn't make sense you know if you look at sort of how things evolve it's actually done in cities when there's more people and there's competition. So so she, so she brings the idea of even agriculture being really something that, that, you know, the exchange of seats. So if you think about, you you bring your 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 grain to market. You're bringing it to a city or or, or a town or something like that. And those pieces of grain are going to mix with other grain, and you're going to get different varieties of grain. And then you're going to develop that as it goes on. She says you need the cities to have that happening. So so her view is that you had cities first, and then you had development after, which is a, which is an interesting approach to it. I mean, you know, she she also um, sort of has this. This idea that you can't have grow, economic growth without cities—that that that really you need that exchange of goods and services uh, within a city to have um, any kind of innovation moving forward. So, so are some sort of interesting observations, and those are the ones that she does later in life.
1: Sounds a little bit, you know, Adam Smithian in in, in ways, mm-hmm. um, you know, that the scope of the market is more. Expanded when you have cities and people living closer together, so you can divide labor more extensively, which opens the door for the opportunity to innovate a lot
0: more. Yeah, I mean, she really thinks that innovation happens in cities. That you that that it's that. Um... You know, it's just the the economies of scale of a city allow for uh, to be disseminated faster. I mean, it's not to say that people living in rural communities don't innovate, but it doesn't get disseminated as quickly, and so that you get much more rapid growth um, through the through the exercise of cities. And we see that, you know, we, you know, throughout history, that you know, the growth of cities is that much greater. That that's where all the innovation is, um, and that's where the people are. So you can't innovate without people. Essentially, is her her basic message. She's so she's got a very positive view of the of the value of human enterprise and intellect
1: so the humans being a very valuable resource exactly i want to switch gears and and ask you a few questions about um, her work what do you think is an idea of jane jacobs that is is misunderstood is there something that you Would want the opportunity to kind of set set the record straight.
0: Um. Yeah. I. I don't. I don't know if there's anything that I'm trying to think. You know, the thing about the Jane is that people really love her. You know, if if you talk to people about about her, they're like, "Oh, yeah, such a great book." I mean, some people say. The life and death is a you know life altering experience they found it very inspiring i mean i think that in her time she was you know she she was loved and hated at, at, at the time i mean professionals Mm-hmm. Dismissed her, right? So you know her people who were wanting to proceed with central planning and thought that experts know best. You know they, they would you know denigrate her, going well she's just a mere mother. You know that would be I guess. Apparently like you mentioned
1: was, in the in the chapter, Robert Moses being this big intellectual nemesis of hers
0: yeah because he's the one that was profiting off of demolishing slums and so he wouldn't want somebody who's writing this book getting all this attention to be criticizing him and so he was the one that's uh certainly um was at war with her and and tried to to say that you know she she didn't know what she was doing Uh, you know professional architects and, and planners said she was an amateur things like that but over the course of time her ideas obviously prevailed you know if you if you look at the history of those projects they have been demolished they and they they were and they, at the end of the day they were terribly built um, they 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 didn't serve purpose and they they get demolished in city after city after city and and so people have to have sort of relooked at her her statements and again she's not opposed to having densification but it's it's got to be in moderation it's got to be how people live and i think it's got to be in consultation with the people who live there um you know i think that people yeah certainly people like to have new buildings and clean buildings uh, but they also don't want to have their businesses destroyed right or their their community taken away from them
1: so really emphasizing the importance of speaking to all of the stakeholders in that community
0: yeah and and again allowing you know and it's it's about where you put your money and, and her po- position was that you know these these projects were not cheap they were very expensive right demolition is expensive building these high rises is expensive so she thought it was a misuse of public funds right because this was effectively public funds that were were going on um to pay for all of this and and they were hard to you know you, you you clear out a slum well you've got to move those people someplace um and so you know sure the first few years might have seemed nice but it, it fell apart very quickly soon after yeah.
1: Are there any areas where you might disagree with her work or or any kind of limitations or challenges uh, that you would like to discuss?
0: Well, I think that, you know, when you read the book, um one of the criticism is that she doesn't ground it in a lot of data. Um, she she tends to do use a lot of anecdotes. I mean, but if you look at the notes, she does have actually quite a lot of research behind it. I know I, I oftentimes when I was looking at it, I was hoping for a little bit more of the statistics. On, you know, she does sort of talk a little bit about how many businesses were displaced, but it's not, it's not front and center. So, you know, academics and um, sort of, certainly like a little bit more evidence-based, but, Having said that, it's so readable. <laughs> it's so refreshing to read her writing. Um, she she really her turns of phrases are lovely, uh, and so I can forgive her a lot. You know, she's missing some of that data detail. I think I'd prefer the narrative over that because I've read enough detailed data reports and fallen asleep to them that I I could avoid those for the rest of my life. And you know, if you can tell me a good story, the, the thing is that you're gonna remember it better. I think her lessons are easily digestible, um, not just for policymakers and academics, but but for, for the public in general. And really that's what we want. And that's sort of an ideal, I think, even in academia. And I'm always trying to encourage my students to, you know, don't bore me. <laughs> Tell me a story. Make 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 this interesting. Make me care about it. Yeah. Um, and and I think society today has gone too far to clickbait. Like that's not what we want. We don't want you to be manipulated or to have shocking things. But right. I think you can convey an interesting story in policy making, and that's going to go a lot further in convincing people than again too much data. Absolutely.
1: Our what are some of the enduring lessons that we should take away from Jacob's work?
0: Well, I think the big one is that central planning, you know, is not going to work and the idea that you have you know bureaucrats or even professionals being able to tell people how they should live is is going to be problematic that, you know, as as, as much as I love education and expertise, You've got to have the public involved in decision making, and you've got to uh, you've got to see what, you know, especially for housing, it's such a it's such a personal thing where people live um, that that they've got to be involved. But at the same time, you you can't allow um, a vocal minority to stop development. You know, uh-huh. but, you know, there's a, sort of this interesting balance. You've got you know you always have holdouts who saying, no, you can't build here because I've always lived here. Um, but you still need to, you know, grow. You still need to allow people to have some sort of housing that's reasonable housing in their in their um, communities, and so that's a tough balance. I mean, obviously, tough decisions have to be made by policymakers and politicians, um, but you need to hear the input. So I, I think the enduring thing is you can't be demolishing people's homes um, without replacing it with something better. And, and for her, the better was always going to be mixed use that you mm-hmm. shouldn't have zoning, you shouldn't have restrictions in that respect. Um, and you should allow people to be innovative with, with the spaces that they're going to inhabit.
1: What do you think uh, the future of cities holds? That's one of the things that you open that chapter on Jane Jacobs's work, talking about the COVID-19 pandemic and and some of the the challenges it raised. Uh, Are there um, particular issues that are related to that that we can understand better through Jane Jacobs's work?
0: Yes. So, I mean, I don't see cities going away. I still think they're really important, but they are changing. And a part of it is changing because of the nature of work, right? So Mm -hmm. many of us can telecommute. Um, And that does change things because you've got a pressure for people saying, oh, I don't need to spend this huge amount of money for a tiny little apartment in downtown Toronto or Vancouver or whatever, pick your city. I can now live in the countryside. Well, okay. Now, Rural areas are becoming more expensive as well, but then there's the other side of it, which is what happens to those businesses in the city that were relying on street traffic, lunch trade, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, as an example, just the other day, the the, the federal governments basically said they've ordered their federal employees back to work, um, saying you got you got to stop telecommuting and you've got to be at work. For a certain number of days uh the workers are like oh this isn't this isn't fair to us and this is you know we're going to make this a collective agreement issue but you know the same news story you you heard from uh, i saw you saw business owners going actually we want them back to work because we are dying here you know we we had a business plan you know that we started this build business five, 10 years ago with an expectation that we would have trade and we're really suffering. So it's a it's an interesting question that employers are going to have to work on, the government and and also the people who provide those services. Like if you you know it's 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 an it's it's a tough position for us all to be in, right? We love yeah. the convenience, but when we go to the city, we still want to be able to go to our favorite coffee shop. Right. Well, that favorite coffee shop can't survive if you're just going to show up once a month. Right. <laughs> and so th- these are sort of those bigger questions. And again, this could be creative disruption. It could be uh-huh. that you don't have coffee shops, downtown cities anymore. Uh, but then you have to wonder what are those cities going to be used for? Are they just going to be playgrounds uh, for tourists and the wealthy, or are there going to be places that we can live on a day-to-day basis? What
1: are some other current issues that you think Jane Jacobs' work is relevant for us to understand?
0: Well, I think it's just the the restrictions on building that we see in a lot of municipalities. Oh. I, you know, I've read some of the reports from Fraser on on just so sort of how difficult and how expensive it is to do any development in in the city and, and the restrictions put in place. And I think she could she could offer some insights about how those are being harmful. They're harmful for for a number of reasons, right? They they delay building, mm-hmm. um, but also they increase the cost. Right. We, we talk about inflation, and, and I and I love it when I hear politicians refer to greed inflation when they talk about the private sector, but they never talk about greed inflation when it comes to governments um, having increasing fees and taxes and things like that. that. That also adds to the cost of building a property, right? If you're putting in hundreds of thousands of dollars in some cases in development fees, well, those fees are going to be passed on to the consumer who's going to purchase that property. So I think that governments have a really important role to play in reducing the cost of government um, because that, that's, a, that's a huge barrier. You can't have affordable housing if you're having unaffordable um, uh, development charges.
1: And affordable housing is an issue everywhere these days.
0: Absolutely, like as I said, there's there's pressure on rural communities because people have been moving out of the cities, and uh, there's pressures on the cities themselves, um, and and it's all about what you can afford, right? If, like, who wouldn't want to live in a vibrant city at a reasonable rate, right? Like, it, 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 I, I mean, I'm sure there are some people who wouldn't want to do it, but. <laughs> there's far more who would.
1: (laughs) I would want to, hands down. Mm -hmm. My husband, he has no desire to live in a a big city downtown. But it comes with benefits, all of these vibrant relationships and the diversity of businesses and people around you.
0: And stuff to do. Yes. There's lots more stuff to do in a big city. I mean, I I personally live in a small town and it's boring. I mean, it's, it's fine for me because I'm a boring person, but I can also have the benefit of living next door to a very vibrant city. So I, I do enjoy the benefits of a city. There's theater, there's there's concerts, there's sporting, there's, you know, all sorts of recreational activity. And you just can't, you know, a small community just can't compete on that scale.
1: So before we wrap up today, are there any last words you'd like to convey about Jane Jacobs?
0: I would just you know i would just encourage people to read some of her work and if you only read one book of hers i would certainly recommend the life and death of great american cities i think it's just a, a lovely uh analysis of the role of cities now it is dated it is sort of a, a picture in time but it you know, I I guess, especially since when I was reading it, I was so starved for outside city life. I went, oh yeah, I would really like to be part of the city again and part of society again. And I think she, you know, her her turns of phrases and the way she approaches the issue is is still refreshing even after this many years.
1: Well, thank you so much for joining us today. For those who are interested in learning more about Jane Jacobs, I highly recommend picking up the Women of Liberty, the Essential Women of Liberty book and reading the chapter on Jane Jacobs. And there's a great list of references and other resources at the end of that chapter as well. Thank you so much for joining me today, Lydia.
0: My pleasure, it was nice to do this.
1: You've been listening to Essential Scholars, a new podcast series that explores the ideas and insights of some of history's most influential thinkers. If you've enjoyed today's episode, Please be sure to subscribe and head over to EssentialScholars.org to learn more. See you next time.